Welcome to the Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Sarah Trino. The sounds you're hearing are from a busy farm in South Carolina in the United States. Fans are keeping grain cool, machinery is being tinkered with, and the farm is a hub of activity. Um, my name is Rachel Sharp, and I am a row crop farmer in Allendale, South Carolina. Um, I farm with my dad, and we grow row crops. So soybeans, corn, peanuts, cotton, oats. For farmers like Rachel Sharp, days are long, but the role is rewarding. In addition to growing a plethora of crops, Rachel's farm also grows wheat and soybeans for seed. Yeah, we, we farm about 2,800 acres down here. And South Carolina is kind of shaped like a, like a piece of pie, if you will. And we are right on the Savannah River. So we're in some really swampy, low country area. Long days. And we're also very, very dry here. We need rain. And so we're having to run irrigation as well. So that just adds another factor to the already very busy um, day. I asked her to tell me why she chose to farm. Well, um, the world has to eat. We all know this. And, you know, it's a profession that I guess has always been in my family. It's crazy. I never thought that I would farm. And I went to school for something completely different than agriculture, but ended up coming back. I love farming because of what it what it does for you know, what it does for me and what it does for, for the world. I love farming with my dad. That's a big bonus. He's been farming for 60 years. The day is never the same. I wake up and I don't really know what's going to be thrown at me that day, but, but I like it. But in addition to increasing uncertainties presented by climate change, such as unreliable rainfall, Rachel, just like so many farmers worldwide, has another worry. Fertilizer. Even as far away from the war in Ukraine as the United States, farmers like Rachel are keenly feeling the challenges posed by procuring fertilizer. Fertilizer is, you just have to have it. There's no really beating around the bush on that one. It increases your yield. It helps It helps your plants overall health. It's just, it's necessary. Like at the end of the year, my dad and I'll sit down and we'll start to plan next year's budget, you know, what we plan to plant. And fertilizer always comes into the mix because I mean, it's just part of it. And this year in particular has been extremely challenging because of the fluctuating fertilizer prices. So this time last year, fertilizer was for us, about 200%, between 200 and 250% less than it is now. So fertilizer that cost me $330 an acre is now costing me, you know, a little over 800. So this is a huge, huge issue. And when you plant, you know, a few hundred acres of crops, you know, you're talking about a couple of hundred thousands of dollars here. It's not, a, it's not anything small. And so it's kind of a make or break thing for us. And it's hard to to explain exactly why fertilizer prices are up. I've asked, believe me, every time I talk to our guy, I ask him, you know, what's going on? Why is this? And you know, I've found that no one really has a great answer. And this is what we'll be trying to answer today in the podcast. What's happening to global fertilizer supplies? Why are prices so high? 
and why is fertiliser so crucial for feeding the planet? We'll be hearing more from Rachel, from experts in the field of food security and fertiliser use, and from the World Bank about the global picture. Countries in West Africa, such as Benin, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, they depend a lot on fertilizer imports from Russia and Belarus. So we see that those countries have two problems. One, they have disruption in the supplies, but they also have the issue of higher prices, which is more severe for them than other places in the world. This crisis has actually shown how imperfect our food system is. It's high time to continue developing this science so that we get better outcomes on the farm and better outcomes in the environment. So, when we talk about fertilizers in agriculture, what do we mean? Thank you. So, Sarah, thank you very much for the invite to this podcast. Uh, Alsbeth Klein, I am speaking to you from Paris. It's a beautiful sunny afternoon in Paris, uh, where I work as a CEO of the International Fertilizer Association. And prior to that, I spent 24 years in Washington, D.C., at the World Bank and at the IFC, last couple of jobs, director for agribusiness and director for climate business. Alsbeta, when we talk about fertilizers, how important are they for global food security? And what are they anyway? What do we actually mean when we talk about fertilizer? Great question, Sarah. And I think this is really, really important to start from this. Um more than half of what we eat today, we are eating because of mineral fertilizers. What are the two, two, three key mineral fertilizers? It's nitrogen, it's potash, and it's phosphate. So what do these three things do? They generally come from the ground or from the air around us, and they are applied to crops, and they make crops grow, and they make them grow bigger, and they make them um, have enough protein and they make them healthy. They are like vitamins that we take, plants take fertilizers to be able to grow. When it comes to the three major ones, potash is a commodity that is mined. It comes from deep mines, and then it's processed so that it can be used on plants. Phosphate is also a mined commodity. It comes from uh, more shallow surface mines. And nitrogen is all around us, it's in the air we breathe, but plants cannot use them, and therefore they need to be processed into ammonium nitrate or other commodities that plants can, quote-unquote, digest. And how, how did it get discovered? What's, what's the history of fertilizer? What is interesting is that fertilizers are not that old. Farmers knew how to farm, and they used whatever they could use. And when you think about the word potash, it's pot ash. It's ash that was left at the bottom of the fire that farmers realized they could use to grow, cro grow crops better. But the nitrogen fertilizers really started in the last century. So around 1905-1910 was the discovery of so-called Haber-Bosch process. Bosch as in the dishwasher that some of us may or may not have, and Haber was another gentleman, two German gentlemen, who discovered how to literally turn air into bread. And why? Because nitrogen is all around us in the air, but as I mentioned, plants cannot use them. And so they found a technology that breaks the nitrogen in the air and creates it into something that plants can use and grow better. So they literally are turning air into bread. 
And we have been using this technology for well over 100 years at this point. Every country uses it, but in different proportions because we use fertilizers depending on what kind of soil we have. And this is actually interesting because 100 years ago, we didn't have tools to uh, look at our soil and look at the quality of our soil and have a precision in our measurement as to what kind of fertilizer do we need? What part of N, as in nitrogen, do we need? What type of K, as a potash, do we need? What, what percentage of P, as phosphate, do we need? Today, we have the technology to be much more precise, and this is where precision agriculture comes in. So every type of soil needs different type of fertilizer, and then we have countries that import a whole lot of potash, for example, Brazil, because their soils are deficient in, in potash, and then we have other countries that, that import more of, more of others. But pretty much every plant needs nitrogen to grow. So that's been used everywhere in the world. And all of them are used in different proportions and different quantities all over the world. That's how we grow food. And we haven't found a better way to do it so far. So why, I asked Elsbetta, is fertilizer sometimes controversial? Uh, Sarah, this is, this is something which is very, very important to understand. And I started this conversation with telling you that there are three mineral fertilizers. Those are fertilizers that come from the ground and go back into the ground. Yes, there is a chemical process in between, but oftentimes we think, oh, we should just use everything organic or we should not use any fertilizer. And that would be fine if we had unlimited resources of land, meaning we can just grow anything anywhere and convert every single hectare of land um, globally into agricultural land, then we can have a luxury of not having sufficient yields and not use any fertilizer. But unfortunately, when you look at today's world, and especially today's global food crisis, we are working under several major constraints. And those constraints are obviously, we can talk about major crises in terms of getting grains and fertilizers out of uh, Black Sea ports due to uh, conflict war in Ukraine. But also we have constraints in terms of environment. We have constraints in terms of how much land we can still use. We have constraints on how much pollution we can, we can still um, have in the air to not destroy our climate. So we are working on the extremely constrained environment. And so the discussion then is, do we intensify our agriculture so we produce more with less? Or do we extensify our agriculture, in which case we go more organic and we use more land to produce the same amount of food? A lot of, uh, a lot of discussion about fertilizers is actually or has been quite misguided due to the perception that the three mineral fertilizers we talk about are unnatural and unnecessary and unhelpful. Whereas if you look into the science of agronomy, they're actually extremely important. We haven't figured out a better way to produce food for the world. That's a great background in why fertiliser matters and what it is. More from Alzbetta in a bit. As Alzbetta says, we haven't yet come up with a better way to produce reliable crops. So what does this mean for our farmer, Rachel Sharp in South Carolina in the United States, struggling to balance the books when it comes to fertiliser? It's not like you can not fertilize. You've already paid or like corn, corn seed, a 50 pound bag of corn seed runs you in the, you know, can run you up to two, $300 a bag. So when you put it in the ground and while you're trying to figure out why the fertilizer prices are skyrocketing, it's not like you can just not fertilize. Then you lose the money that you've spent on the corn seed that you've already planted. So planning was kind of thrown out of the window this year because it, we didn't know. We didn't know how much we were gonna pay for it one day and literally the next day it would change. 
Okay, uh, I'm John Buffes. Uh, I'm a senior economist with a prospects group in the World Bank. My main responsibility is to issue and uh, co-author the commodity report. And I'm also managing the process of uh, putting together the commodity price database for the World Bank, which we uh, publish once a, once a month. So how much of an issue is this globally and what's causing the shortfall? John explains. Uh, that's a good question. The, indeed, fertilizer markets have been uh, through quite a bit of turmoil recently. Uh, most of the world's uh, food needs are met by four main commodities, three grains, that is wheat, rice, maize or corn, and also soybeans. Those four commodities account for something like between two-thirds and three-quarters of uh, uh, global uh, calorific intake. And that's why fertilizers are more important for those commodities. They are important for all commodities, but they are important, very important for those commodities because those commodities account for most of our food intake. And is this the case equally all over the world or are there certain parts of the world where it's particularly important to have a good supply of fertilizer for these staple crops? Given that most of the supplies of uh, the food supplies, world food supplies come for the commodities that I mentioned, it's very important that those commodities uh, use the adequate or rather the right amount of fertilizer uh, simply because of the size of those commodities. So it's important, for example, that uh, there is fertilizer for maize, for wheat, for soybeans and rice uh, to meet the, the, the world's uh, food needs. How is the war in Ukraine affecting global supplies of fertilizers? Well, uh, it affects it in several ways. Uh, first of all, uh, two countries, uh, one Russia that is involved in the war and another country neighboring to Russia, Belarus, those two countries combined account for something like uh, 20% of global fertilizer supplies. And that's a big number. That's a very important number. And the problem is that there have been some sanctions on, uh, on Belarus, so supply of fertilizer from Belarus has been constrained. And uh, we also have uh, supply disruption uh, issues uh, through supply chain disruptions, and that has reduced the amount of fertilizer that is produced in these countries. Both uh, it has reduced the amount of fertilizer that is produced, but it also has re reduced the amount of fertilizer that is being shipped out of those countries. So that's one side of the problem. The other side, the other side of the problem is that some of the fertilizers, especially the nitrogen-based fertilizers, they use natural gas as the main input. And because natural gas supplies have been affected by the war in Ukraine, and even prior to the war in Ukraine, we have seen reductions in the supply of fertilizers elsewhere except, I mean, outside uh, Belarus and Russia. So we have the two countries that are involved in the, region, in the region directly, Russia and directly Belarus, and also other countries that are using natural gas as a key input to produce fertilizers, and that's why we have this kind of global problem with the fertilizer. So it's just a very complex issue. It's a complex picture indeed. Have we already seen the high fertilizer prices passed on to all the food that we're buying now? 
the food that we are consuming today, of course, it was produced, let's say, six months ago, but it was using fertilizer which was purchased one year ago, let's say. Back then, it was very affordable. So high fertilizer prices today or disruption in the supply of fertilizers today or in the past few months that we have experienced may contribute to problems probably six months from now or one year from now. Because, uh, as you can imagine, there's a long cycle between producing fertilizer and bringing food to our plates. So it's a long cycle which takes a year or perhaps a year and a half. And where in the world is particularly vulnerable when we're talking about disruption like this? In terms of prices, everybody that produces uh, food and uses fertilizer, they pay a higher price because fertilizer is subjected to the kind of demand supply global or the demand supply forces. So that's one aspect of the of the problem. But on the other hand, we have places like in Africa, which although they do not use as much fertilizer as other places in the world, for them it's very important because they rely a lot on uh, the home sort of grown food production. And uh, countries in West Africa, such as Benin, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, they depend a lot on fertilizer imports from Russia and Belarus. So we see that those countries have so to speak, two issues or two problems. One, that they do not have, they have disruption in the supplies from the countries that I just mentioned, but they also have the issue of higher prices, which is more severe for them than other places in the world. Because farmers, for example, in the United States or in Europe or in Australia, they can afford high fertilizer prices because simply they get uh, higher prices for the commodities they sell, whether it's wheat, soybeans or maize. But for African, poor African countries that they use even very little fertilizer to grow food for home consumption, that problem is worse for them. John Baffes. Back to him in a bit. But first, I wanted to ask Alzbeta how she sees the knock-on effect of the fertilizer price spike and the supply issues. We've got a major problem in front of us when it comes to food security. And we have a full-blown global food crisis in front of us. So that's the problem we have today. But that's just the beginning, Sarah. The other problem we have is that Russia and also Belarus produce a significant amount of global fertilizers. So between Russia and Belarus, where we have some sanctioned entities, sanctioned companies, and they can no longer export, they produce about 40%, 4-0 of global potash. And you can ask me, how did we end up with such a concentration? It's a mineral. It is where it is. It happens to be in the ground in Russia and Belarus and Canada mainly. And that's why you've got 40% of market concentrated in Russia and Belarus. And that material is not making it out of Russia and Belarus by and large. And it's not making it into the global markets. Other fertilizers in, in the nitrogen value chain, ammonium nitrate, Russia accounts for something like 23% of globally traded uh, ammonium nitrate, and many other fertilizers that they produce uh, because of uh, ample resources of gas, which are today not getting into global markets. So just to recap, we have a crisis today because we are not exporting grains out of Russia and Ukraine, but we have a brewing food crisis because we don't have fertilizer to fertilize lands all over the world so that we can produce for the next harvest and the one after. If you don't apply fertilizer, you're going to have a major decrease in yields. So I'm afraid we need to find global solutions as a global community to deal with the food crisis that we have today, but also food crisis that is going to be happening two to three harvests from now. How much does the energy story play into this? 
And how does a lack of fertilizer or cost issues impact the behavior of farmers globally? Yes, fertilizer prices went up because prices of energy went up. And this was already on the back of very tight situation after COVID-19 because a lot of governments um, prioritized fertilizer industry. So there was a lot of production already happening during, during the pandemic in 2020, 2021. Then we got a curtailment of the supplies of, from Belarus, which obviously if you take 20% of potash from the market, price obviously goes up. And now we also have sanctions uh, on uh, some, of the, some of the company shareholders in Russia, and the Russian potash is also not getting out uh, to the world. So suddenly we are missing something like 40% of the potash supplies in the world. Obviously, then the price will go up. Uh, it's not just the price, it's just availability. And that has a knock-on impact on how farmers behave, what they plant, what they do not plant, how they tend their fields. Soy needs a little less fertilizer than corn because soy fixes nitrogen in soil. So uh, we have seen a tilt towards more soy and less corn, and that obviously will have an impact further down the value chains. But it has an impact on small farmers too. Um, I was just in Chile last week and I spoke to a blueberry farmer with exports to the US and she said, well, I only fertilize the rows that look healthy. I don't fertilize the rest because I don't have enough fertilizer to actually fertilize my entire uh, greenhouse of, of blueberries. So the impact, unfortunately, will be global and it, be, it will be felt in every single part of the value chain because our global food system, whether we like it or not, is extremely interconnected, extremely global. We build it that way. But it's going to take a while before it sorts itself out. So have we seen anything like this before? Are there lessons we can learn from the past? I asked John. Have you seen any comparable situations in terms of fertiliser supplies in your experience, in your career? Uh, this is a good question. Uh, we, did, uh, we, have, we did look at this issue and try to find comparable situations. When we look at prices of fertilizer prices, uh, we had a similar spike back in 2007-2008. Fertilizer prices back then increased by a similar amount compared to the increase that we, we experienced uh, this year and last year. Uh, but going even further back, I think uh, the most comparable uh, period is uh, back in 1973-74, when fertilizer prices increased even more back then than in percentage terms than what they increased now. And that also caused high, high food prices. So if we have to go back to the 1970s and find the conditions that are kind of comparable or similar in terms of what caused fertilizer prices to go up and what are the conditions such as higher input costs, energy costs, and of course, uh, higher food prices. Do you think the situation, price of food and also the fertilizer shortage is going to be somewhat the status quo for the next six months, a year? Um, how, how do you see things evolving? Yes, for, for the next six months, or at least, I would say even more than that, even for a year, we don't see how prices will come down. We see prices, in fact, when we published, we published our commodity markets outlook just more than a month ago, and in our price forecast then, we projected that fertilizer prices throughout this year, that is 2022, will be about 70% higher than what they were in 2021. Uh, and uh, we do expect a bit of moderation next, next year, but that's going to be a small decline. And the reason we think that uh, uh, prices are going to stay 
high is because of our ex- expectations about energy prices. We think that uh, the energy sort of uh, industry or the energy environment is going to be subjected to high prices and high, high pressures, and that's going to impose pressures on fertilizer. So I, I don't, I wouldn't like to go as far as saying that it's the new normal that we're going to have high fertilizer price forever, but at least for the short term and the medium term, by medium term I mean at least for the next two years, we're certainly going to see uh, high fertilizer prices. John Baffers, many thanks. It's a worrying picture. So I asked Alzbetta what kinds of solutions there might be to mitigate spiralling costs. New technologies are really the key and they are not a nice to have, they are absolutely essential to have. Why? Because at the beginning of this conversation I mentioned to you that we have some planetary boundaries, which is environment. And at the moment, not all fertilizers are used effectively. In, in the business, we use a term called nutrient use efficiency, which is how much of a particular fertilizer a plant would take and how much of it is wasted into the environment. And obviously, the goal is to make sure that whatever plant we are trying to nourish takes all of the fertilizer it can, and then we uh, have limited discharge into the environment and presumably, hopefully, no discharge to the environment. So there is a lot of research happening on how best to fertilize, what are the best technologies on the field to use the fertilizer so that we don't waste it, so that we use it well and every drop, every ounce gets used. And so some of the technologies that are being used already today is, for example, um, fertigation, which uh, marries irrigation and fertilizer, and it's used in very measured quantities determined by sensors and used only as much as is needed for a particular plant in a particular stage of growth of that plant. There is uh, a lot of research and practice into coated fertilizers, which release less product into the environment and more into the soil. But there's also agricultural technologies such as no-till farming. It is already being done in parts of South America and parts of the United States, uh, which actually keeps carbon in soil, which is obviously good for the environment. So uh, there are a number of technologies, some of them already used, some of them still being developed, which are absolutely critical. And it's not just to create an alternative, because right now we actually don't have a science to have an alternative, but we have to use what we have much more carefully And we have to really use every drop. When fertilizers are pricey, it forces farmers to really develop their technologies on the field so that they use every drop that they have as effectively as they possibly can. So um, that's why my company actually has developed a a smart and green platform where we host um, startup companies in Actec who can come and present their innovations to the established players in the industry and bring the science forward. As I mentioned, our science is 100 years old, Haber-Bosch from 1900s. It's high time to continue developing this science so that we get better outcomes on the farm and better outcomes in the environment. This crisis has actually shown how imperfect our food system is. We already knew that we have to continue rebuild our global food system. And this crisis that we have today is showing us that there are no perfect solutions. There's no one solution that fits all. We need to use what we have and we have to continue developing our science and we have to continue developing our technologies. We have to keep our trade flows open as much as possible because that's how the world was built uh, when it comes to food. And we have to make sure that farmers get to farm their plots and get to feed themselves. Many thanks to Alzbetta. So what's the plan back on the farm? I asked Rachel what they've decided to do. 
Last year we planted 1,000 acres of corn and corn is a crop that notoriously takes a lot of fertilizer. So when we were thinking about this, we thought, all right, do we really want to risk planting dry land, which is non-irrigated corn, fertilizing it and then potentially losing it later for, because of lack of water. So what we did is we cut our corn crop back to only the acres we could irrigate. And it, it then made us, you know, we're putting soybeans now under um, or in soil that isn't irrigated because soybeans usually take less fertilizer than, um, than corn. We've really had to alter our, what we do on our farm and other farmers around the area are doing the same thing. I even know farmers who decided not to plant corn this year. They didn't want to take that hit if they didn't have irrigation, it just wasn't worth it for them. But you know, then that leaves people next year and we're in the same situation. What if the crop doesn't make? Not only do you not have, you don't have money for this year, but you don't have money to pay for fertilizer for next year either. So it can, it can snowball very, very quickly. And how is she feeling about the situation? Has Rachel's father ever seen something like this before after 60 years of farming? because my dad is always very calm, cool, collected. He, you know, his attitude and his demeanor is just very day by day, you know, he goes through it. But I, for the first time I could see him and I could sense him getting a little uneasy about this situation. So I asked him the same question you're asking me. I said, daddy, you know, have you ever, is this something new or have you seen this? And he thought for a second and he said, Rachel, I've never seen anything like this. And I said, in all those years, never. And it's it's tough. It's not sustainable anymore to, to farm with the prices like they are. Not only do we not want to lose the farm or the land or anything like that, but you, I mean, farmers are very, very aware of their responsibilities to, to feed the world, to feed people. And it's something that I've found all farmers take very, very seriously. And, you know, it definitely plays in your in the back of your mind, you know, how about if I can't produce this? What if I can't, you know, make the crop this year? It's more than your farm on the line. It seems to not matter where you are, whether you farm on a really large scale or do something smaller, there's definitely some, some nerves at play with all farmers. And, you know, the unknown, I think that scares everyone. It's a lot of change very, very quickly. For food producers and consumers, fertilizer is an essential commodity and our food security very much depends on its availability. While the war in Ukraine has undoubtedly had a huge impact, it's a complex picture with a lot of competing forces at play in our interconnected world. For Rachel and so many others, there is more uncertainty and there are more tough choices to come. Thank you so much for listening to our contributors and many thanks to Rachel for letting us take an audio tour of her farm. This has been the Table for 10 Billion podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Sarah Trino and we'll be back soon. 